This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, September 11th, 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. The NSA has been violating Americans' rights for years, according to newly declassified documents. And while that may come as no surprise, the revelations are changing many minds on Capitol Hill about what to do about the agency's willful missteps. Julian Sanchez, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, comments on the latest revelation. There is a pattern to the disclosures about NSA activities uh, that Edward Snowden, the former NSA contractor, has supplied. Uh, Every time we learn something about disturbing uh, NSA activities, something that's not clearly legal or that interprets the law uh, in a far broader way than any ordinary person would have assumed, we are assured about all the safeguards that are in place, about the limited nature of the program, but all the things that they're not doing. Um, And then Further leaks show that those uh, those assurances were themselves either false or, again, deliberately misleading. And so what we see here is that from uh, both affidavits and opinions of the FISA court that have been obtained not by Snowden but by uh, Freedom of Information Act suit by the Uh, American Civil Liberties Union and the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we know that from its inception in 2006 through 2009, uh, the rules the court established uh, to control access to this massive archive of every American's phone records um, were in essence ignored, not completely ignored, but that uh, with respect to a huge quantity of querying of that data, the the main thing everyone was told was going to protect the privacy of innocent Americans, which is there was only going to be a query of this data when there was reasonable suspicion connecting a particular phone number to a specific terrorist group. Uh, And now we know that in fact, it didn't work that way, that there were uh, alert lists with thousands of numbers on them, which had not been assessed for reasonable suspicion, that were in fact being run against the new data coming in to develop reasonable suspicion, which is like searching your house to make to see if you can get probable cause to search your house. Uh, at m- more disturbing, perhaps even than that, though, is that over that period of three years, the court was repeatedly misinformed about how the NSA program worked. The court was approving again and again orders for the bulk collection of all Americans' phone records based on a description of the program it was getting from the NSA. And as we now know, for three years, that description was wrong. And the claim, uh, of course, made that, that again, the, the FISA court and we just sort of have to accept on faith because there's no uh, real ability of the overseers here to follow up uh, on the claims the NSA makes. But the claim NSA makes is that this was uh, not intentional. It was a problem that resulted because it was this huge sprawling program and really no single person actually understood all the aspects of the program. So the person writing the description for the court uh, didn't actually have an accurate understanding of all the different aspects of what they were doing with this call record information. Uh, That is not especially reassuring, even if you think it's true, that this wasn't a kind of sneaky attempt to find a loophole in the court's order. Because what this tells us is that these programs are so vast and 
complicated that it's actually not really possible to oversee them, even from within the NSA. Never mind if you are a judge on the FISA court who may not be a software engineer or even an expert in FISA law before this, let alone, again, a member of Congress whose encounter with this uh, stuff is not regular reports uh, the, the FISA court judges get, but uh, a short briefing with no notes and no cleared staff where they get a very partial picture of what's going on from some uh, high-level official sent to brief them. Uh, incidentally, the, the information that's in the uh, documents released this week also call into question another assurance the public was given, which was that, uh, yes, this was a vast database uh, with millions of, of people's phone records in it, but uh, in the last year, it had only really been queried about 300 times with 300 different numbers. Now, that in itself was a somewhat misleading claim because of this practice called contact chaining, where they don't just pull up the records of the number that they punch in, but the records of the numbers in contact with them and then the numbers in contact with those numbers out to three hops, one query can reveal the records of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. But uh, even leaving that aside, what we find from these documents is first, because of these alert lists, which by the way have not been eliminated, the alert list uh, protocol continues, um, amounting to, I think, a, a, an illegal version of a different kind of authority called a pen register. Um, it really seems like this program is a way for the NSA uh, to do a certain kind of surveillance that Congress established a totally different set of procedures for um, by finding a loophole to do it a different way. Um, and we know that that alert list has often tens of thousands of numbers on it. But there's also a reference and a footnote to uh, another little bit of impropriety uh, where two analysts over the course of about a month and a half did manually uh, about 280 queries of the database without, again, the appropriate approval to determine that they had established reasonable suspicion. Uh, and you have to wonder, well, if it was normal for a couple of analysts to be doing hundreds of queries in a month. Uh, is it really realistic that they've changed the process so much that in 2012 there were only 300 queries the entire year? Um, it, it at least seems quite suspicious. Uh, and the problem from the public's perspective is we've seen so many word games that the NSA plays. Uh, they use acquire or collect in a way that no normal person uses it to mean they've actually read it as opposed to they've got it in a database. They talk about what they're not doing under this program, but then don't mention that actually it's part of a program where they do do that. Um, here, too, it seems pretty clear from uh, General Keith Alexander's test, uh, affidavit to the court that the personally identifying information that goes with those numbers, public was told again and again, uh, remember these databases don't contain uh, the identities, it's just numbers. Uh, well, it seems pretty clear that even if it's somehow in a separate database, they can automatically get that information immediately. Um, all these word games mean that when they say something like, well, don't worry, they're only doing 300 queries, you have to wonder, well, what is a query? Are they using query in a special, different way that isn't anything like the way you know ordinary people using Google think a query is just a search you type in? Is there something that's not a query but an automated alert? Because that seems to be most of uh, where the information is coming from. Uh, you know, 
experts are still sort of poring over these documents. I haven't read every one of them even yet as, as closely as I would like to. Um, but it is increasingly clear that we have a broken oversight process, that there were serious problems with the way this was implemented, that in fact the left hand didn't even know what the right hand was doing within NSA, uh, that that level of confusion, that level of inability to understand the way the program operates means it would be almost impossible to detect an intentional abuse when and if one did occur. Um, but that moreover, the reaction of the people we have elected to oversee these secret programs and uh, confirm that they're operating within the law in a controlled manner um, are not interested, even when they must or should have known that the court had been extraordinarily disturbed by the repeated misrepresentations and by the repeated violations of their orders, that those didn't deign to tell the public that. that the people who are supposed to be overseeing uh, these programs were more interested in covering for them. They were, uh, they were, they were determined to reassure the public, but not mention uh, you know, all these things that the public should actually legitimately have been worried about. It seems that uh, you know, oversight committee is now perhaps accurate only in the sense uh, that uh, it describes their willingness to uh, commit a lot of oversights. Uh, recently, we've learned several things. One is that the president admitted during a press conference overseas that he gets a lot of his information from these kinds of media reports about the NSA. Uh, Daryl Issa, to the extent that uh, he is uh, considering what to do with respect to the NSA, now wants to reconsider uh, funding certain programs that the NSA has been engaged in, which is, is kind of a big deal, at least uh, on the House side. Uh, and we're also learning that the, the Obama administration in 2011 got specific restrictions on the NSA's activities tossed out. So it seems like there has been, at least with respect to the Obama administration, enormous buy-in for what the NSA has been doing up till now. Is that fair to say? I think there's, uh, yeah, there's I think a, a problem with two aspects to it when we, we talk about how we trust uh, the executive branch or the FISA court um, to conduct oversight. Um, first, there's, there's what Hayek called uh, the fatal conceit of planners. Um, you know, central planners always think that they are smart enough to oversee uh, entire complex systems. Uh, when those systems are secret, um, of course, the problem is compounded. Um, but there's a sense, I think, even among the public that we don't know what's going on, but there are these people who are cleared, who understand what's happening, and they're, with their reassuring us that this is both necessary and appropriate, uh, we can we can sort of trust in that. Uh, but it's just a mistake. The fact that someone has the legal authority to have access to information about you know, these sprawling multi-billion dollar programs involving tens of thousands of, of people and sophisticated uh, uh, computer sifting technology, um, there's just no guarantee that you actually understand what's going on. I mean, I, this is something I study uh, you know, all the time and it takes uh, a lot of very close reading and close research to make sense of what 
uh, I'm seeing in these documents. Uh, you're talking about someone who, even if they have unredacted access to everything, is just going to be expected to have a grasp of what's going on from a three-page summary. I mean, that's just totally unrealistic. It's like uh, expecting that someone who's read a two-page brochure on uh, computer viruses is now uh, equipped to write software to fix uh, an infected system. And the other problem is, of course, that because they're obligated to keep secret over long periods of time, the supposed overseers really do become complicit. If you know that something's happening, even if initially you object, over time, the fact that the secret is shared with you uh, makes you party to whatever is being done. And if you can't radically alter it. Maybe Obama would be able to, but certainly legislators single-handedly have limited ability to do that. Um, the tendency is to become captured, uh, to become not uh, really an independent check, but an apologist for uh, the secrets that you have been entrusted with. Julian Sanchez is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at Cato.org.